0: from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org.
1: The time's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio, with your hosts from Moffka, is up next.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture here in the state of Maine, Brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. here on WERU. We are open to suggestions on future topics and guests for the show, so please feel free to contact us with your thoughts and ideas through our website, which is www.mofga.org. Well, fall is here, and it's that time of year to pick apples. Uh, And for today's show, we will discuss the history and cultivation of apples here in Maine with a focus on some of the unique varieties that you won't find in the grocery store. So I have a couple guests here in the studio with me, but before we get to introductions and discussions, uh, I would like to make listeners aware of a few upcoming food and farming related events they may find of interest here in our community. So first, if you are looking to pick your own apples this fall at a local orchard, but you're not sure where the nearest orchard is, uh, you can visit the website for the Maine State Pomological Society, which is www.mainapples.org, And you can find certified organic apple growers through MOFCA's website at either mofca.org or mofca.net. And I'm sure you can find uh, lots of tree-ripened fruit at your local farmer's market. Some other events here in the area on October 11th at the Woodlawn Museum in Ellsworth from about 11 to 5. There will be an Apple Festival festival put on uh, by the collaboration of the museum, Healthy Acadia, and the College of the Atlantic, and I think we may hear a little bit more about that uh, on today's show, but information can be found at the Woodlawn Museum website, which is woodlawnmuseum.com. And then towards the end of the month, on October 25th, is Great Maine Apple Day, which runs from noon to four o'clock, held at Mofka's Common Ground Education Center in Unity. And more information can be found on that at Mofka's website, which is mofka.org. So now I'd like to uh, introduce the two guests that I have here in the studio with me today. And we'll get into our topic about talking about uh, heritage apples and their growth and cultivation. So here in the studio, I have John Bunker, who lives in Palermo on his farm in Homestead, Super Chili Farm, and he runs Fedco Trees, based out of Clinton. John has spent over 40 years tracking down and cultivating heritage fruit varieties of all kinds, so not just apples, and working to spread the word about the value of these varieties, not only for historical perspective, but also their importance for posterity. Thank you for being here, John. Thank you, CJ. And also, I have Todd Little Siebold, who lives in Ellsworth and is a trained historian with a passion and avid eye for heritage apples, with a focus on the stories they tell of the past and how they will create stories in the future. Uh, Todd is a faculty member at the College of the Atlantic and has been teaching there for nearly 20 years. Thank you for being here, Todd.
2: You're welcome. Okay.
0: Uh, Well, before we get going, I would like to remind listeners that this is a call-in show and we'll be opening up the phone lines in maybe 10 minutes or so. Uh, But before we get to that, um, I'll make sure I give out the phone number so you can call in with any questions and comments. And before we get going on some discussion and questions, I just wanted to give each of our guests a chance to say a little bit more about their background, their work, uh, their passion for heritage varieties of Apples or fruit, and um, just give listeners a little bit more about the work you do and John, would you like to to go
1: first sure well i uh as as c j said, I uh, started Fedco trees about uh oh thirty years ago or so, and uh i've been Selling trees through Fedco, uh, including many heirloom, what we call heirloom or heritage varieties. And uh, also spending a lot of that time tracking down uh, rare varieties, heirloom varieties from all over Maine. So uh, I've been really in every county and... uh, Uh, I like the old, old, old trees. The ones that are big and hollow and broken down and look like they're half dead but still have a few sprouts on them. And all over Maine, those those heritage heirloom, historic, whatever you want to call them, apples are are still around. And I like to think that they're waiting patiently for someone to come along and care again. So uh, after many years of saving them by collecting the grafts, scions as we call them, and grafting them onto trees in my place in Palermo in, in uh, Waldo County. Uh, more recently, we've been um, developing a large uh, heritage preservation orchard over at Mofka, and that orchard now has uh, a little more than a hundred uh, of these varieties that were grown traditionally in Maine. And uh, yesterday, in fact, we were fertilizing the spots for the next approximately 100 trees that will be planted next spring. So uh, the trees are still out there. Uh, Many people ask me, uh, um, are the old varieties gone? And I like to say, well, no, they're probably not gone. They're probably still out there. It's just a matter of being sort of like a modern-day Sherlock Holmes and tracking them down. (laughs) Just have to get out there and find them
0: where they're they're hidden. Definitely. And Todd, how about your interest in apples and work as a historian as well?
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here um, today with both of you because I've worked um, both with John and with CJ on different apple projects um, here in Hancock and Washington counties. Um, My trajectory is slightly different than John's. I'm a Latin American historian by training. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work on Uh, colonial Latin American history, and the way that I got interested in apples was about um, eight or nine years ago, I started doing a little bit of reading um, actually about genetics, and it was the first time, and John repeats this in many of his public talks, where he talks about how every seed in every apple is genetically unique Mm -hmm. uh, and the radical diversity that that leads to in America. Um, And that sort of led me to a few sources, as a historian would, that um, raised the question of how many apple varieties there were in early America and the idea that there are 10, 20, 30,000 named varieties uh, was just absolutely fascinating to Mm me. So what I ended up doing was beginning to think about a local history class that would focus on documenting and um, trying to track down the old varieties uh, through my classes at COA. So I developed a class... On the history of agriculture, focused on uh, basically having students do community based research, but focused on tracking down these old apples that are uh, in the area around uh, Bar Harbor and on MDI. So we've documented now about 450 trees on MDI, uh, and one thing led to the next. Um, we began restoring the orchards that the college has at our, our Beach Hill farm. And then, as uh, CJ, you know, we've planted uh, 50 new varieties, uh, 50 historic varieties and newer varieties at our Peggy Rockefeller farm. Uh, So I've spent the last years getting uh, deeper and deeper into this, trying to help um, really focusing on the area in Hancock and Washington counties to try to identify some of the varieties. Um, And the other prospect that I've become very, very interested in, the history of apples in Maine. Uh, and I'm slowly working on a project to, to sort of tell the stories of the people who grew the apples. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically it. John and I also traveled. Um, one of the collaborations directly that we had was we traveled to England with a group of students to look at the history of agriculture in the UK, mm-hmm. looking at apple agriculture and the um, persistence of cider. So I've become quite a uh, f- fascinated as well with the history of cider. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically it. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. I like how you mentioned the people that grow them because I don't yeah. think the trees would be here without the people behind them, correct? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things I just wanted to get a little bit of the of the language, and John, can you referred to this a bit, but... Sometimes people refer to them as heritage varieties or heirloom varieties, historic varieties. Is there a difference between those terms to you or just depends on how they're
1: used or who's using the words? I would say that there's really no difference and that uh, it's it's uh, no one has really attempted but that I know of to define any of the terms. Um, so i uh, for my own convenience, I defined them <laughs> and, uh, and what i what I like to say is that uh uh I define an heirloom apple as being one that was grown in maine before nineteen thirty three or nineteen thirty four and I use that. I use that benchmark because 1933, 1934, was the last true test winter in Maine. And uh, about, uh, well, over a third of the apple trees in the state died that winter, which was millions of trees. And uh, it was kind of the the end of the early era and the beginning of the more modern uh, sort of commodity uh, apple orchard model with the Max and the Cortlands and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's what I use. But in, in terms of uh, when they originated, I tend to use 1900. So I like to think of the varieties that originated before 1900 as being the the uh, heirlooms. And then as far as heritage, or I, I think the whole notion of the heirloom plant is, is pretty much a uh, a fairly recent invention. Heirlooms were usually talked about as, you know, a rug or a piece of furniture or something, um, and not as a plant. And that notion is, you know, relatively recent. But I think that 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 what we're really talking about with all those terms are traditional varieties that were grown for uh, generations um, before the modern era.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, Todd, so, do you want to add anything to that? Well,
2: <clears throat> I think it's a, a really fascinating for a historian. It's really fascinating because, um, for example, Macintosh, which is cons- considered sort of a, a contemporary commercial variety because of its predominance in New England after the 1920s and 30s, um, was uh, basically found uh, in 1794, roughly 1794 in Ontario. So some of them are quite old, and I think the idea that um, what we're really what we're really interested in is first off, really, really old trees that may be the last exemplar. Um, and I actually think the term just old tree, you know, helps people sometimes to to, to be looking out mm-hmm. and um, for that broken down tree that might be the last exemplar. And I think the question, one of the interesting things about the definitions, is which ones do you focus on when you're looking for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as john said we tend to i tend to focus on trying to find the ones that are perhaps the rarest mm-hmm. um and perhaps um ones where we're actually rescuing the genetic diversity that was so prevalent here um over time so i think the traditional varieties um is a, is also is a good term but the terminology is mixed and in the end doesn't really matter because what we'd like to do is help people find those old trees, preserve them, mm-hmm. uh and um and value them again because they're incredibly it's an incredibly important part of our uh agricultural and historic heritage. Um our food heritage that as you discover it, you realize it's part of a, a absolutely brilliant system of agriculture that was diversified and has you know we still continue to to discover how they did everything.
0: Mhm. Okay great thank you um and then what I'd like to talk a little bit about and so listeners can get some more information is really how did these where did these varieties come from I guess I mentioned the diversity that's in the seed um I think we've talked in the past about no two seeds would really be the same but John in terms of that heritage variety that was the favorite of a family 200 years ago um where did the tree come from? You know, they were not going down to the local nursery, I'm sure, to purchase trees to plant in the yard. But the trees were established somehow. Could you speak just a little bit to that?
1: Well, as uh, many listeners will know, the apple that we eat or make into a pie or press into cider did not originate in North America. So uh, it originated halfway around the world, and slowly made its way across Asia into Europe, Russia, and so forth, and then eventually to the to uh, North America, oh, uh, well before the pilgrims, um, and came originally pretty much as seed. And uh, the seeds were left everywhere. Everywhere an apple was eaten, the seeds were left, and first on the islands off the coast, uh, with the with the different fishermen that were, um, that were fishing the coast of Maine, and then eventually inland. When Europeans came and settled in Maine, they brought apple seeds with them. Occasionally they brought trees, but almost exclusively they brought, they brought seeds. And everyone had an orchard, and these were orchards, small orchards, 10 trees, 20 trees, 30 trees, not, not the big orchards that we think of today. So everyone had an orchard, and they were almost all seedling orchards. So everyone had this uh, wonderful diversity that Todd was mentioning in their orchard. They had seedlings, and, uh, and this, this was really a, a gigantic uh, breeding project inadvertent breeding project because this was going on in Maine and then all the way in every state all the way down to Georgia out to the Mississippi River. Johnny Appleseed was not unique in what he was doing. He was doing what everybody else was doing which was planting apples from seed. So out of these literally tens of millions of seedlings came what we think of uh, you know, historically as the American varieties. And so someone would... Would find uh, one of their seedlings uh, kept all winter in the root cellar, or it or it f- ripened in July, or it uh, made a great pie, or made wonderful sauce or butter or cake or bread or cider or something. It had some quality that they loved, and then they would pass it around through grafting, and when they when that's the only way, as I think people know the only way to replicate a variety was to graft it. So they would graft it, and they would pass it around, around the neighborhood, then sometimes around the county, and sometimes beyond, and they would pick up names as they went. So an apple that might be called uh, the Orland Sweet in Orland became the Bucksport Beauty in Bucksport, and next thing you know, it was grown in 20 different locations and had 20 different names because... This was not a commercial enterprise so much as a way of, uh, of of having a small, diversified, uh, semi subsistence farming model.
0: Okay, and and just thinking about that early distribution and trying to kind of track, like the examples you just gave, try to track the movement. I think. Taught on the historian side, yeah, are there records or resources that can help you kind of find that trail from centuries ago? Well,
2: it's it's very interesting to me because again, um, there are two dimensions of this that I I immediately wrote down. You know, not going to the nursery. One of the things that's really fascinating in Maine is because of this the time where where uh, Maine was settled after the Seven Years War, after the what we call the French and Indian War. Um, they actually pretty quickly were going to nurseries. Uh, one of the first nurseries in northern New England is established in Orrington here by Ephraim Goodell um, by 1797. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in Hallowell, Benjamin Vaughan establishes a nursery in, by 1808. Um, and actually, by not really by happenstance, but by um, maybe uh, a combination of, of uh, luck and intuition, we've been able to track down um, the original tree orders from Hallowell to London and what varieties Benjamin Vaughan brought to that area in 1808. Mm -hmm. And those two nurseries were basically um, some of the first named varieties that we know. We know that they're present, and you can sort of say, okay, how did these diffuse out from these certain areas? Maine has a very unusual history uh, in North America in some sense, which I think actually is one of the reasons that that it's so important to conserve the diversity or discover the diversity here. The initial settlement of the state happens in the early 17th century, um, but then Maine is abandoned because of ongoing warfare between the English and Native Americans and French. And so there are different waves of introduction of varieties and development of varieties in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century. Um, And most, many, many, many of the named varieties actually come forward in the 19th century with the decline of cider um, consumption uh, because of an early temperance movement And the dessert varieties, the ones that we eat, as people will say, out of hand, Mm -hmm. um, those largely develop, some of them develop earlier in the colonial setting, but many, many of them develop in the 19th century, sort of the new um, early republic. And that's where you see, as John said, this amazing explosion of diversity as people um, buy varieties, some varieties. I think that most orchards would have had some uh, bought varieties early on. Uh-huh. Um, but also then they would discover, um, you know, the CJ Sweet or whatever that they found along a rock wall. And as they get passed around, and one of the things that I've done is tried to track actually where main varieties end up in the rest of the country. Um, and Cole's quince is a, is a main variety that ends up being sold, uh, extensively in North Georgia. Uh-huh. Um, so the sources are out there, and then by the late 18th, late 19th century, we begin to have lists from different people listing what they're growing, what, what are the best varieties, that sort of stuff. And actually, Orland, where we are right now um, at the old Craigbrook Fish Hatchery, uh, Charles Atkins has an extensive collection of 88 varieties in the early Late part of the nineteenth century. So what you what we're trying to do for sources is track down those lists, then begin to use them to say, well, in nineteen eleven there was a greening apple called the Prospect Greening. Is it still there? Mm-hmm. And then enlist people's help to try to try to track it down. And that's what John's been doing for forty years is taking those uh, hints about where an apple might be, what a name might be. Um, and a lot of it now is talking to finding old-timers who remember names. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually just looking for that nursery in or- Orrington. Um, John had also gone looking there and uh, sort of by happenstance ended up um, through a connection there uh, meeting an old 91-year-old uh, woman uh, who was just as sharp as a tack. And she would say, well, now that is a really old tree. And it's called a northern greening. And you say, okay, great. Well, uh-huh. now we have uh, that sort of source. So I think one of the things that's fascinating in this work, and John says this often in his public talk, sometimes you have an apple and you're looking for a name, and sometimes you have a name and you're looking for an apple. Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of my work has been trying to bring the documentary evidence to bear um, and find some of these sources. One of the great things about this Charles Atkins story here in Orland is he sent in dozens of apples from this area to the USDA and then they had these wonderful watercolors painted of them and they documented them. And so we actually have these beautiful watercolors of the apples that grew in this area right here uh-huh. uh, 106 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so, And those there are thousands of those from across the country and I can't encourage people enough to look those up online. They're called the USDA pomological watercolors. Uh-huh. Uh, you can squander a lot of time looking at beautiful pictures of not just apples but pomegranates uh traditional varieties of of grapes uh peaches so uh really a lot of it is bringing those those documentary uh the documentary evidence together with um people who still remember uh, and part of the urgency of this work is that there are fewer few fewer people who do remember yeah I imagine and so uh really working hard to get out there and recruit as many people as possible to ask their neighbors if they remember what these apples are called. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, And then, as John said, part of the effort that MAFCA is doing now, and I'm working uh, in a supportive role in that, is trying to document as many of those and and preserve them at the Heritage Orchard at the fairgrounds uh, uh, in Unity, Mm -hmm. 600 varieties, hopefully 600 varieties over time. And we're doing the same thing over at the college's Peggy Rockefeller Farm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, I just want to take a minute to remind listeners that they are listening to Common Ground Radio here on WERU. And today we are talking about heritage apple varieties uh, unique here to Maine. And in the studio with me are John Bunker from Super Chili Farm in Palermo and Fedco Trees and Todd Little Sebold of Ellsworth, who is a faculty member at College of the Atlantic. Uh, this is a call-in show, and I'd like to be able to open up the phone lines here in the next couple of minutes. So that number, the toll-free number to call in is 1-866-625-9378 if you want to call in with your question or comment about today's topic uh, where we're talking about Maine Heritage apples. Um, I wanted to get back a little bit, <clears> Todd, <throat> because you just mentioned the USDA Pomological Watercolors. And I feel like there's often a lot of focus on apples, but there are more than just, uh, there are other fruit, I guess, out there that you could (laughs) call heritage or heirloom varieties. It's not just apples. And I wasn't sure, um, John, if you would want to speak to some of that. Do you work with some of that through Fedco as well?
1: Uh, Yes, there are considerably fewer but there are a lot of very old pear trees uh, still scattered around in Maine. And uh, every once in a while, somebody uh, contacts me and says, you know, I need to go and, and see this tree or that tree. And um, the, the pear uh, selection available in modern uh, nursery catalogs is, is very, very limited. And uh, in Maine, there still are probably two or three dozen uh, different varieties that were grown traditionally here that that can still be found. And uh, over the years, we at FEDCO have attempted to bring a bunch of those back into production and get them out into the community. Uh, there are also occasionally old plum trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just um, visiting Islesboro uh, oh, about a month ago um, and went on a walking tour of old orchards in Islesboro, and there was one plum tree that was really, really old. It was a beautiful tree, and nobody knew anything about it except that it was so old. The, the Different prunus species, including plums and peaches and apricots and so forth, tend to be not nearly as long-lived as, uh, as the apples and the pears. So um, finding them uh, still around is, is much more challenging. Uh, we have found some uh, plums in Arista County uh, where they have uh, rooted themselves and then come up in big thickets uh of of you know old european plum varieties so you you can find them but it's it's um considerably more challenging to do so we'll put it that way okay.
2: um, and i just uh, i thought i'd make a comment about that cuz one thing that's really interesting is that um Bangor uh, Horticultural Society in the mid 19th century was a sort of hotbed of plum breeding. Mm-hmm. All these uh, plum breeding uh, plum breeders, like you know, experimenting with different varieties, um, and so there are a number of native varieties of um, plums and pears that come f- basically from that area. And uh, I think that's just so such an interesting thing. I was talking to somebody from Bangor the other day, and I said, you know. Um For example, in all my work that i 've done uh, down in hancock and washington county i 've seen one or two plum trees uh i 've seen you know maybe a couple dozen big big pear trees mm-hmm. uh, and then thousands of apple trees and I think the um focus on the on the heirloom fruit in general one of the things that um is very interesting to me is the whole process of forgotten fruits what happened to them where are they can we rescue them? And, you know, as I go trundling around, and I'm sure this happens with John as well, you see these old, you know, immense grape plants that have just taken over a corner of an old farmstead. Mm -hmm. And you say, I wonder what that is. (laughs) Um, And the one thing I would say about that that's really important is um, this work requires lots of people to keep their eyes open, but also then um, to, to be quite blunt about it is that there's not somebody in the state of Maine who's dedicated their time and energy to tracking down, for example, old grape varieties that I know of, for example, um, in the way that John has focused on apples. Uh, the pears are really interesting because one of the things that uh, Maine was the last commercial, uh, commercially viable area in the United States where they produced peri, which is pear hard cider, mm-hmm down in the area around Sanford and Salmon uh, Salmon Falls River. Um, so what we really need is somebody who gets really excited about the pears in that area um, mm-hmm. because it's a big state and, uh, you know, many of these, much of this is really developing the expertise and understanding um, what do I have here, what have I found, can I, you know, do, does it have a name? Um, but it is really, I think, the building interest and the people who have done work on other species as well of heirloom uh, plants ornamentals as well it's it's worth saying that that's a really important aspect um of this collective work but the forgotten fruits have a a kind of a compelling uh charisma that i i think um has helped us with uh with tracking down some of these varieties okay
0: and then um I can see the prunus species not being as long lived, so easier to disappear. Uh, Focus being, or apples being more prevalent in how they were grown, but just with that that peri and the pear piece, I often feel like you see a lot of these old apple trees out there, you don't see as many pear trees. So, was there something going on, I guess, at that time where apples were favored over pears, where they more easily acquired? Um, do you know like, the background there? Well,
1: I think that that uh, apples uh, were grown more than pears, but many, many pears were grown, and probably uh, one of the primary issues involved is that the pears also don't grow are not as long lived as the as the apples. But the apple um, is sort of king. In Maine mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, in terms of just just it, it grows so well here it loves the uh, it loves the climate and the soil and the moisture and so uh, people and and it is such an incredibly diverse uh, fruit with all that can be done with it so um, it was really the most popular um, one of the things you were mentioning prunus and um, I have um, friends that do this type of work further south and they're very frustrated um, with trying to track down old peach varieties because the peach is sort of the apple down south the peach is sort of is sort of the, the apple of the south you might say uh-huh. and because the varieties uh, because the trees don't grow very long um, they're having all kinds of difficulties finding the old peach varieties and many of the peach varieties are gone. One of the, the beauties are the, the, the convenient things about doing this work up here is that the apple trees do often grow to be 150 years old or longer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, they do withstand complete neglect for decades. So, uh, There can be a tree that no one has fertilized or pruned or done anything with for generations, literally, and it's still out there, Mm -hmm. you know, behind somebody's house or in an abandoned field or whatever, just, uh, as I said, just sort of waiting for somebody to come along and and care again. Um, One of the uh, other issues about... um, about all this work is that uh, and this is maybe a little bit beyond what we're talking about but the these trees were grafted onto seedling rootstocks and that gets in a little bit into grafting and maybe we do a program in grafting sometime in the spring when, when we do the grafting mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> these days the orchards are Almost, an, almost always grafted onto semi-dwarfs and dwarfs. And a, a dwarf Macintosh tree is the same as a standard Macintosh tree or a, or a Macintosh tree grown on a seedling. It's just what you graft it onto. So when you graft a dwarf, it's a stunted root system that is making the tree smaller. It's still the same Macintosh. But um, the dwarfs and the semi-dwarfs are not long-lived, so they're sort of like peaches in that respect. Mm-hmm. And uh, people ask me, well, should I plant my should I graft uh, my tree onto standard or onto dwarfs or semi dwarfs or should i should I buy a standard a standard being the full size tree or a dwarf or semi dwarf and there's compelling reasons why you might want to have a dwarf or you might want to have a standard but one of the most compelling for me is that the standard trees will grow to be uh, with a little bit of care easily over 100 years old, whereas the dwarfs and semi-dwarfs will be gone in a, in a few decades.
2: Okay. Can I make one comment? Definitely. Um, the persistence and uh, sort of uh, u- ubiquitous nature of the apple in Maine has to do with the fact that an export market developed from Maine relatively early on, that by the 1880s and 1890s, Maine was shipping A million, million and a half barrels a year to England. And so, uh, because the market demanded it, for example, in Ellsworth, we went uh, from having 12 orchards in 1850 to 84 orchards in 1880. So what we see a lot of on the landscape right now are orchards that were planted largely in response to that international and national uh, export market mm-hmm. after the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. Okay. Um, so, and pears uh, n- never really developed that, uh, that export market, and so you didn't see the sort of boom mm-hmm. where people had literally, I've said to in a number of uh, occasions, a-, a cash crop. Uh, that I think actually extended the um, viability of some of those diversified farms for a generation or two, because they actually were earning money as ca- uh, literally cash on the barrelhead. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: All right. Well, take another moment to remind listeners that you are tuned into WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we're talking about heritage fruit varieties, uh, our main heritage apples as well. More of a focus on apples, I think, but we've been touching on it all. And it is a call-in show, and we'll take any calls, questions, comments. And the number to call in is 1-866-625-9378. Uh, we did have a question come in here, though, which, I don't know, John, if you want to take a stab at this one in terms of... V- apple varieties the most tart that may be out there
1: <clears throat> and how you how would you define the most tart <laughs> <laughs> well well apples have uh have uh, acidity and they have sugar and and so uh the the varieties that we think of as being sweet these days, which may be like honey crisp or you know something like that really um, are not that sweet. They are a balance of acidity and sugar. Some of them do have fairly high sugar content, but they also have a, a high acidity content, and that balance of acid and, and sugar is what makes them a good dessert fruit, a good fresh-eating type fruit. Um, the, the acidity... Um, I'm not really sure what the listener is is thinking about um maybe some I mean I know some people just like really a sit really tart apples and uh you know I I would say if I if I was going to say what is the most tart apple um well, uh, one that's really tart, that is a real favorite of mine, that's a dessert fruit, is King David. And, of course, this is one that you're going to have a really hard time finding. But it's so tart that when you—and uh, it is a dessert fruit. It's, 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 you should eat it fresh. Um, I like to think of it as sort of the apple version of sushi um, where, and uh, with, with a good dollop of wasabi on top of it. Because the <laughs> first time the first time I ate it, I thought that I was seeing stars. So, so uh, if you can find yourself a good, ripe King David, I think you'll be all set. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like we have a couple of calls that just came in. So uh, we'll go to our first
0: caller here. If you could give us your name and the town from where you're calling and then your comment or
3: question. Is yep. this one me? This is you. Okay. Brian from Rome, town.
0: Okay. Hello, Brian. Thank you for
3: calling. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Um, I got um, just a couple things. I remember as a kid, and that was, uh, well, somewhere around 50 years ago, there was an apple that I really enjoyed, and since then, the tree has disappeared, and um, it was an apple that was quite large, and it was deep, deep burgundy. And if I remember correctly, it almost seemed like it might have had some kind of minuscule stripes in it. And it was a hard apple. Um, And I think people called it like a winter apple. Have you any idea what that was?
1: Ooh, that would be a good question. (laughs) Well, one possibility would be Baldwin, uh, which was uh, one of the old traditional apples being grown in central Maine and would have been up around the Rome area. Um, and uh and it would have been uh, I call it more of a brick red than a burgundy, but that 's all sort of semantics yeah. um, there is uh there is also an apple that uh, that i've been attempting to track down, which was called Rome of Maine, and I think it probably is a variety that originated in Rome. It yeah. was named by Joseph Taylor and Joseph Taylor. Was uh, a really important person in the pomological society back in post post Civil War. He lived in Belgrade, but he introduced uh, between ten and twenty varieties, and one of them was uh, was Rome of Maine. So maybe maybe the apple that you remember is uh, is is that variety. But well, I have to check
3: into it
1: further. Yeah, yeah. Keep a lookout for the for the, uh, really, really oldest trees. And, you know, um, a good place to look is, um, is, uh, the, the road that goes from, uh, gosh, what is that road? The road that goes around the north end of Great Pond. Watson Pond Road? I, I guess so. It has a number, too, as it 220-something or other? Oh, or 225. So. Okay, 225. <laughs> that road, there is a road <laughs> off of it, which is called the North Pond Road. Yep. And at the corner, at that <laughs> corner, there's a little <laughs> orchard, and they have some very old trees on both sides of the North Pond Road. Uh, there's oh, th- interesting. There's only about maybe eight trees, but, um, but maybe your apple is there. Oh, I'll check that out. Okay. On the street. <laughs>
2: and Brian, one one comment. So, uh, MAFCA organizes this uh, Great Maine Apple Day, uh, yep. which is October 25th. Uh, the reason I suggest you think about that is there'll be a, several hundred varieties of apples that you can try. Oh, cool! And they'll have a bunch of varieties. The traditional varieties will be out on display, and you may actually see see that apple. You know, it could be a Black Oxford. It could be an Arkansas right. Black. There are varieties. Uh, and that's the best place to really see apples and try them and say, oh, yeah, I think that I think it is, you know, Baldwin, or I think it is Rome of
3: Maine. Oh, good. I'm making sure I do that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say is that you were mentioning old pear trees. I have one um, at the place I'm living. It's probably 12 inches, 14 inches in diameter, and uh, I think it's like on its last legs. It uh, really... Um, there's only, um, just a little bit of the, the trunk left. It's like completely hollow in the inside. And there's a little bit on the exterior that I think that's keeping it alive. I wouldn't be surprised if it was at least hundred years old. Hmm. If anybody's interested in coming and taking a graft off of that.
1: Is there fruit on it this year? There was, uh, there wasn't very many, um,
3: the year before last, there was a tremendous amount of fruit on it and then there wasn't much last year and then there wasn't a lot this year either
1: well you you i i do come up that way uh relatively frequently and um and you could contact me this is john bunker through mofka or through fedco okay well um and and maybe i would come by sometime yeah that would be
3: awesome i can get you a number from brca as well oh sure yeah okay Okay, great. great
1: thanks for your call
3: Thank you. Thanks for calling, Brian. Well, that was good. I think
0: we gave him some directions on places to look (laughs) right there in his own town. Um, (laughs) And just bringing that up with, you know, these these varieties out there, what people remember, and kind of the identification piece is what I wanted to ask about. And, John, you've been doing it for a while, but how do you really – um, and I know Todd has talked about wanting to be able to train people to get these skills, but how would you really acquire those skills? It seems like it's more a matter of you just have to be out there doing it. There is,
1: there is no real handbook, would you say? or there, there is no handbook. There are a few pretty good books that, um, that can be a help. Uh, one is, uh, then you have that here, is, is the set, The Apples of New York, which is sort of the best we have. Um, there's also, um, uh, and, the, and the Apples of New York has uh, pretty good detailed information about the, the, uh, the different attributes of different varieties. There's also the Apples of Maine, and the Apples of New York is from roughly 1900. It's, it's not in print, although it may be coming back in print. It's, it's hard to find and it's expensive. But you can find it if you're if you're you know if you really want it. There's also the apples of Maine, which is also out of print and is not as good, in fact it's not very good at all in terms of the descriptions. It has some rudimentary descriptions of some of the varieties, but it's very good in terms of in terms of what was being grown here a hundred plus years ago and that's uh, as i said also out of print we're trying to get it back into print now we're working with with uh, the people who own the rights to that um the the i think probably the best way is uh is to go to events like uh, the one at woodlawn or the one at, uh, on the october 11th of the fedco i mean the Mafca great main apple day on october 25th the common ground fair go and look at displays and uh, take pictures of the displays. And when you learn an apple, uh, go to commercial orchards. Uh, most commercial orchards have a few heirloom varieties. They might have a Baldwin or a Northern Spy or a Golden Russet or whatever. And then you take the Northern Spy and you pull out your cup holder in your car and you put it in the <laughs> cup holder instead of coffee. <laughs> and then you look at it, now, except you don't, you don't look at it when you're in traffic. Um, no texting but uh, but anyway you just it's just one at a time you just start and you, you learn one and you and I, I used to what I would do is I would line them up on the counter in the kitchen and just uh, and write they you can write with Sharpie on an apple really easily so I'd write the names on and, and I would just stare them. at them while I was you know chopping onions or doing the dishes yep. so it's really it's just one at a time, one at a time. Okay. Well, I
0: think we do have another caller here coming in. So like they just say, caller, if you could go ahead and give us your name, uh, the town from where you're calling, and then your comment or question. Hi. Hello.
1: Hi, this is uh, Rayette from Blue Hill. Hello, and Rayette. I, I just would like to hear you talk a little bit about how climate change has affected um, the apple growing. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think that last fall uh, was an interesting, uh, well, an inter- an interesting fall. We'll put it that way. What what I like to say is that the apples, and you could film, you could put any plant in here. The apples respond to the environment in which they find themselves. So, uh, if you plant a little tree and you don't water it, well, it's going to die. Um, and if you plant a little tree and you take care of it, it'll thrive. Um, last fall, uh, and, and uh, nobody knows if any one instance uh, is, has something to do with climate change or not. So, so we'll just say the apples respond to the environment in which they find themselves. Last fall was a very long fall in most of Maine. Much of Maine had no frost until... November. Uh, in, uh, down my way in Waldo County, uh, the apples grew all fall long, and then in uh, early November, it became very cold very quickly. So the usual frost that would have been by now, and which we had about two weeks ago this year, a year ago we didn't have it. And many of the varieties um, were hit hard by that very those very cold temperatures in November. What we're talking about now is less about winter hardiness and more about winter readiness. Um, many of the hardiest varieties, the varieties that were grown traditionally in Russia and more recently, meaning a hundred years ago or 150 years ago in Arista County, those varieties tend to uh, shut down and go dormant early. They have a, they they understand innately that that fall is here and winter is coming. So in our orchard, those varieties fared very well last year because they had dropped their leaves, even though it was a warm fall. They had still dropped their leaves, and when the when the cold temperatures came. In November they were all set but the varieties that didn't shut down were hit hard people are saying um, you know someday we'll be growing mangoes and pomegranates in Maine and maybe we will be but I tend to think that it's sort of uh, in a a sort of uh, almost ironic that it may be that as the climate changes It's going to be the hardiest varieties that do the best here, even though it may get warmer. Because what's really probably happening, at least so far, is that the weather is becoming more erratic, not necessarily predictably warmer. I hope that helps.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure if Rayette's still there, but the... The erratic weather, I think for sure, on the other end of the season in the springtime has also caused some issues.
1: Yes, yes, especially uh, two or three years ago when we had 80 degrees in March. And what that did was it triggered the response in the apples and many other plants was to flower a month early, which is not necessarily a bad thing, except that... um, we we had these bizarre eighty degree temperatures in March, and then we still had our usual frost, heavy frost, heavy cold temperatures at the end of April. Normally, that's not a problem because because the, the plants are all still dormant. But when that happened uh, three years ago, was it three years ago? I don't remember. Two years ago, three years ago, uh, the plants were flowering. So so in that particular case, what happened was. Uh, uh, many many flowers in some cases all the flowers on the trees were just killed outright
0: hmm okay well we are kind of winding into the final minutes here of the show but um, I wanted to just remind folks we are talking about heritage apple varieties heritage fruit varieties here in Maine and if people are interested in more um, learning more and maybe even trying to identify the apple in their backyard Uh, I mentioned a couple events at the beginning of the show, but Todd, would you like to
2: take a minute or two to speak about the event at Woodlawn on October 11th? Sure. So this is the second um, Down East Heirloom Apple uh, Day that we're doing in collaboration between Healthy Acadia Woodlawn and the College of the Atlantic. It'll be uh, from 11 to 5 on the 11th. Um, People can bring... um, apples to be identified, they can see a display of apples, there will be cider pressing. Uh, We have Dan Bussey coming from the Seed Savers Exchange, he's finishing a seven volume history of American apples. And then also Claude Jolicoeur is coming down from Quebec, he's the author of the new Cider Makers Handbook. And uh, last thing at four o'clock we'll have a hard cider tasting, so we want to introduce people to some of the main uh, hard cider producers. But uh, join the hunt. You can track me down at the College of the Atlantic if you have uh, trees in this area that you want me to look at. Um, And uh, John and I are continuing to work on the whole question of how to help people learn how to identify uh, significant trees. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then another place
0: I know for sure is at the Great Maine Apple Day event that's held at the Moffca Grounds in Unity on October 25th which looks like it'll be running from noon to four. And I know John usually have a pretty good display of Mm. uh, dozens, hundreds maybe, of different apples and various fruit.
1: Uh, We'll probably have, uh, oh, maybe 150 varieties there. And there will be dozens of varieties for people to taste. Uh, We'll also be doing identifications. You can bring your your fruit with you and we'll do our best to identify them. I also do uh, IDs uh, pretty much uh, right <laughs> straight through every day. Uh, I don't sleep during the fall. I just do identifications all day and all night. So um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I shouldn't even be here now. I should be at home identifying fruit. So, uh, and I do do house calls, so, uh, so uh, that's a possibility. Also, I just wanted to say, that um, uh, one of the reasons why uh, these heirlooms are so valuable, well, there's multiple reasons. One is, of course, the history and the fun stories and so forth. Another is that many of them are disease-resistant, and as people want to use less sprays, uh, these are an option. And also, uh, if you want to make, really good applesauce or really good pies or really good apple butter or cider, you, uh, you'll do better using uh, different varieties, not, not the ones that are commonly grown in the, in the grocery store, commonly available in the grocery store. And uh, if you don't grow apples, but you want other apples, you want a, a greater selection, Go to the grocery store and say, you know, uh, I, I would like a really good pie apple. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or go to the orchard and say, and say uh, where are the cider apples? And by asking, by asking uh, repeatedly, everywhere we go, um, people, the orchardists themselves, will respond. And we'll wind up with a much greater selection of varieties available to all of us. Okay. Well, we've come to the end of our show, so I'd like to
0: thank Todd Little Seabold from College of the Atlantic and John Bunker from Fedco Co Trees for joining us today. Thank you to Amy Mann, I mean <laughs> Amy Brown, excuse me, Amy, for engineering the show, and this has been Common Ground Radio. Uh, you can hear us again on the first Friday of every month here on WERU. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Support for WERU comes from the Hamden Farmers Market.